You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine at University of Illinois Chicago, Dr. Jay Goldstein. Dr. Goldstein has served as an independent contractor, consultant, and is a member on the Speakers Bureau for Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America, Incorporated. He has also been the recipient of funding for research grants and educational grants from Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America, Incorporated. How frequent are gastrointestinal complications associated with therapy and oncology? What are the most common and how can they be managed? Joining us today to discuss the issue of gastrointestinal complications associated with oncologic therapy is Dr. Robert Bresselier, Professor of Medicine in the Department of Gastrointestinal Medicine and Nutrition at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Bresselier is also the Bertie J. and Lydia J. Resoff Distinguished Professor in Gastrointestinal Oncology at that center. Welcome to ReachMD. Hi, Jay. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Let's take a, a little scenario. You are called in the hospital because patients are having complications associated with their oncologic therapy. What are the more common things that you would be called for? Right. Well, before I go into that, Jay, just let me say that gastrointestinal complications of oncologic therapy are, are very common. And it's important to differentiate issues related to your underlying disease states with the therapies themselves. And Fortunately, we have many and increasingly complicated therapies for a variety of cancers, both cancers primarily the GI tract, but cancers in general. But with those come naturally complications. And so there are many of these, and I think the gastroenterologist has to work closely with the referring oncologist in in recognizing these entities and, and as a team approaching them. So some of the more common things we do see or uh, let's just start with diarrhea. Now, diarrhea is very common anyway, and the gastroenterologist is used to seeing this. But in the context of the oncology patient, diarrhea can not only be common, but can be uh, life-threatening. And the differential diagnosis in the oncology patient is very broad. Obviously, you have the, the full spectrum of entities we see in the immune-competent patient. But on top of this, we have certainly the complications of chemotherapy themselves. Many of the drugs... Uh, that are used for chemotherapy and, and are used for GI entities and, and, and otherwise have diarrhea as one of their complications. So and as we go to multi-drug regimens, let's just take colon cancer, for instance, the ones that include irinotecan and related drugs, capecitabine, all these are associated with, can be associated with profound diarrhea. So it's important to recognize that. Many of the new small molecule biologicals that we use as adjuncts in treating cancers, including colon cancer, have diarrhea as their complications. So it's important to recognize that diarrhea certainly can ensue from radiation in the patient who's getting radiation that may hit the GI tract. Infections, infections are quite prominent, and C. difficile, although it certainly is associated with antibiotic use generally and can be in these patients, can occur even in the absence of recent antibiotic usage in the immunocompromised host. And it's important to rule out C. diff in many of these patients. One of the more feared entities is neutropenic enterocolitis, and this is a clinical syndrome in which patients who are neutropenic, and many of these are leukemia patients and lymphoma patients undergoing bone marrow transplantation, 
develop uh, abdominal pain, especially right lower quadrant pain, fever, diarrhea, and it's important to recognize this because this can be really life-threatening. So as you can see, the spectrum for diarrhea and immunocompromised host, as well as the patient receiving a variety of chemotherapies, is broad, but it's important to recognize this full spectrum of these entities. So if you're called in for consultation for a patient who develops diarrhea while being treated with chemotherapeutic agents that are known to be associated with the development of diarrhea, how do you differentiate who to evaluate further or who to make an empiric diagnosis of a side effect of the drug? Sure. Well, I mean, I think the first thing, as with any patient with diarrhea, we try to assess the severity. You know, is this just a, a few loose stools or is this severe watery diarrhea? And the understanding the differential, understanding the characteristics kind of can point us in the right direction. But certainly, one of the first things we do are toxin assays for C. difficile, because that's really very common in these patients. And if and often we have to, more perhaps than usual, use sigmoidoscopy as an adjunct to, to rule that out. So that's an important thing. That, and it becomes, to some extent, a diagnosis of exclusion. It's a matter of timing and patterns as well. If the diarrhea occurs in conjunction with and it's episodes of chemotherapy and specific chemotherapies that are associated with this, sometimes you can recognize that by the pattern. Certainly, if someone has received radiation to the rectal area, perhaps, and has blood to stool, you know, we consider radiation-induced diarrhea. So I think we, our differential has to be guided by the patient's history, the severity of the symptoms, but we have to rule out infectious disease to start with and then uh, work our way down the line. Do you empirically treat patients? We do, and of course, you, sometimes that's what you're left with, as it's probably not surprising to know that many times we don't have a positive culture, we don't have a positive C. difficile toxin, so we have to treat empirically with agents which alter uh, intestinal motility, the ones we, we usually use, certainly keeping the patient hydrated orally or, or by IV, electrolyte replacement when necessary. And sometimes it's, it's very severe. We have to even go so far as to use things like a triotide as second-line therapy in these patients. Well, these are empiric treatments for the diarrhea itself. What about for disease entities associated like uh, C. diff? Do you empirically treat? You know, C. diff is treated with the appropriate therapies as you would with anybody else, but, you know, we probably, unlike the immune-competent patient, we would go to IV antibiotics probably faster than we would in an immune-competent patient, and these patients can get very sick, and they can develop fulminant pseudomembranous colitis probably more frequently than we normally see in the immune-competent patient. One other entity I think is important to mention is graft-versus-host disease, and that's inferential as well. And graft-versus-host disease especially acute graft-versus-host disease following bone marrow transplantation can affect many organs of the GI tract, and certainly diarrhea is one entity. Many times, because of the implications of having that and the need for you know, fairly rapid treatment, we get asked to, to rule that out in the differential, and that will often involve biopsies of the colon or upper GI tract. All right. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights from ReachMD Radio on XM160 the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Goldstein, and joining me to discuss gastrointestinal complications of oncologic therapy is Dr. Robert Brasselier, professor of medicine in the Department of Gastrointestinal Medicine and Nutrition at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Brasselier is also the Bertie J. and Lydia J. Resoff, distinguished professor in gastrointestinal oncology at that center. Well, let's turn our attention to some specifics. We have known complications associated with some therapies. Are there preventative things that can be done, and could you share those with your audience? I think 
There are instances where preventative measures are taken. Let's take something that's quite common, and that's the nausea and vomiting associated with chemotherapeutic agents. And, of course, we see this very frequently. And the likelihood of developing nausea and vomiting will depend on many factors, including the individual agent itself and the dose used. And in fact, there's been a sort of a scale derived, giving the so-called metagenic potential of various chemotherapeutic agents. And some of these have very low potential, such as bevacizumab, for instance, or, and others have very high potential. 90% of people who take cisplat- get cisplatinum, for instance, have a fairly significant nausea and vomiting. So if we know we're going to use an agent that's likely to cause fairly severe vomiting, then we would actually give these patients antiemetics both before and after chemotherapy for those drugs that have a high metagenic risk. Take another quite different example, one that I think many of the listeners are familiar with, and that is hepatitis. And patients with pre-existing liver disease are more susceptible to drug-induced hepatotoxicity, and certainly we can reactivate hepatitis B virus and have uh, ensuing disease during courses of chemotherapy. So sometimes we treat these people prophylactically with lamivudine, which seems to be beneficial in preventing reactivation of uh, hepatitis B in those that are uh, at risk. So those are two examples where we would prophylax the patients in, in, in some way for two quite different entities, but important ones. You mentioned earlier radiation colitis or radiation injury to the luminal GI tract. Have there been advances in the treatment or prevention or treatment of radiation-induced injury? Well, for prevention, obviously keeping the windows for for radiation as as tight as possible. And if if we're not, for instance, primarily radiating the GI tract or the rectal cancer, but other cancers where the bowel can get in the way, often the windows can be set up to try to avoid as much as possible radiating the bowel, but sometimes it's not always possible. Once one has radiation-induced bowel injury, and of course this can be either acute, uh, occurring within six weeks of beginning radiation therapy, or, or chronic, which occurs much later, what do you do? And this has been a bit of a struggle, certainly for especially chronic proctitis, where this is a small vessel obliterative disease, where patients get bleeding. We can use argon plasma coagulation or APC. Sometimes we use steroid enemas. You know, people have talked about sucrophate enemas, but I think the data on that is, is very anecdotal. But the bottom line here, unfortunately, is while there have been trials of various things, even hyperbaric oxygen, short-chain fatty acid enemas, None of them are quite satisfactory, and we do the best we can, but we certainly haven't made as much headway in that area as we'd like to. So it's a wait-and-see policy? It's not something we can really, other than trying to keep the windows appropriate for radiation, prevent if it's going to occur. And then if it, if it does occur, unfortunately, you are dealing with the sequela as opposed to prevention. If we're going to be talking about chemotherapy in patients with specific cancers, What insights can you give to our audience about some important pearls in uh, managing these patients? Well, I think the important pearls are really understanding that many of these complications are quite serious and life-threatening and not, not to underestimate them, that they require prompt diagnosis and treatment, that they are common, and that infectious disease quite commonly needs to be ruled out. One needs to be somewhat familiar with the different treatments as well as different complications because really rapid recognition is important in often life-threatening situations and that the gastroenterologist really does need to work as a team with the oncologist in helping to identify these problems and deal with them as quickly as possible. 
What about nutrition during these episodes of prolonged therapies? Well, nutrition, you know, underlying nutritional status is very important, obviously, for good performance status of these patients and their ability to tolerate, you know, different therapies. And I think that often these patients are quite sick. The nutrition can be a problem. And often we do get asked to put in gastrostomy tubes or provide these people with adjuncts uh, during their, their courses of therapy. Do you think nutrition plays a role in the incidence of side effects? Well, I mean, it, it's hard to say. It's an excellent question. These are studies that really need to be done, but very few have been done. Probably one of the key things that determine whether a patient will tolerate uh, aggressive therapy for their underlying cancer is their performance status, and part of that performance status is their nutritional status. As oncologic therapy progresses and we have greater and greater efficacy for treating cancers, what would you say about the role of the gastroenterologist in working with oncologists for the better treatment of cancer? Well, I think the gastroenterologist has become and is becoming more and more involved in the treatment of cancer, not only the complications of cancer, but cancer in general. And we, we've talked about some of the systemic aspects, but obviously there are other aspects that the endoscopist is often involved in. And a term has been coined recently, endoscopic oncology. And I think that indeed some have suggested that the gastroenterologist in many ways has become a, an oncologist since many of the things the gastroenterologist deals with these days are oncological issues. I'd like to thank my guest from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, Dr. Robert Bresselier. Dr. Bresselier, I want to thank you very much for being our guest this week on GI Insights. Well, thank you, Jay. I enjoyed it very much. You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America Incorporated. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA. Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is proud to sponsor this important and quality programming for ReachMD listeners. Takeda does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by the AGA Institute. Based in Deerfield, Illinois, Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is a wholly owned subsidiary of Takeda Pharmaceutical Company Limited, the largest pharmaceutical company in Japan. In the United States, Takeda markets products for diabetes, insomnia, wakefulness, and gastroenterology, and is developing products in the areas of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other conditions. Takeda is committed to striving toward better health for individuals and progress in medicine by developing superior pharmaceutical products. To learn more about the company and its products, visit www.tpna.com.